It's a page 1007. 1007. Actually, next week, we're going to back up a little bit to take in verses 32 and following of chapter 10 as a kind of introduction to this chapter. And we're going to do a study throughout Hebrews 11 into chapter 12, the first couple of verses, uh, and be studying what the writer has to say about faith. And I've entitled it, as you can see, Faith, Expecting God to Do Us Good, and taking that basically from verse 6, which is a central verse that defines much of what the chapter is about. The examples are are filling out then the meaning of that verse in verse 1 of chapter 11. But we're about faith here for the next uh, couple of months. This morning, we're going to try to get at, as a kind of introduction, what, what is this good that is promised us? What is this, the nature of this reward that he, he gives us? But let's read then verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, or you could translate that the certainty of things hoped for, the conviction or demonstration of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So you see three times this idea of being commended by God for this faith. And that leads then to verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Thus, the reading of God's word. And as I say this morning, this is an an introduction to this idea. Uh, Because of the Lord's Supper, I wanted to have a briefer time just to focus on this idea of what is this goodness of God? What, what, how can we look at that? If somebody described to you a cruise that you're about to enjoy and they would tell you all aspects from the beginning of the cruise and then the different ports and what food's going to be available on the way, all the aspects of this glorious vacation you're going to take. And that's some of what we want to do this morning. What, how can we explore some of the riches of this goodness? Because he says, He is a rewarder of those who seek him. He brings absolute benefit and goodness to those who seek him is the meaning here. And so we're going to introduce by this idea. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would open up to our hearts to see the something of the riches of your goodness toward your people. Bless us to that end, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I give you an acrostic that uh, hopefully will help you remember this. First of all, we're going to see that God's goodness is wholehearted. 
He is fully engaged in giving us this goodness. Then secondly, it's all-encompassing. It embraces every aspect of our lives. And then the, the G part is that he is, it is goal-oriented. It has an end in view, his goodness. And then finally, it's never-ending. And we'll, we'll deal with different aspects of what that means that it's never-ending. So the, the acrostic is simply wagon, okay? Uh, wholehearted, all-embracing, it's goal-oriented, it's never-ending, this goodness that is given to us in Jesus Christ by our God and Father. So, it's wholehearted. Uh, in Jeremiah thirty-two forty-one, he says, I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land with all my heart and all my soul. So you see, the, the, the rejoicing indicates that he's completely, infinitely enthusiastic in giving us that goodness. He rejoices to give us that goodness. And he says, with all of my heart and soul, I will do good to you. So there is an unlimited commitment. There is an intensity of passion on his part. Nothing is held back. Nothing is in reserve. All of his resources are devoted. In poker terms, God is all in, okay? Completely invested. Now, you're talking to some investors. You want to raise $40 million, and this incredibly wealthy investor says, I'm all in. And you say, well, for, for how much? He says, all my $40 billion. You say, well, that's a thousand times more than what I need. He says, I'm all in, dude. So, this is This is God. Unlimited resources committed to good and not just a bare commitment. Okay, I'll do this. But it marks the enthusiasm, all the enthusiasm of his being. He will rejoice in doing us good. And the measure of his passion, Paul gives us in Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? There's the. Apostolic logic. He gives his son. That's how passionate. That's how enthusiastic. He'll give us everything. He is entirely committed to us. Secondly, though, and because of that all uh, that wholehearted involvement, it is all encompassing because we're dealing with a sovereign God. A sovereign God who's all-powerful and all-powerful uh, all sovereign presence is with us. He has absolute lordship in this passion. As, as it says of Christ in Ephesians 1.23, He fills everything in every way. And so His goodness cannot be held back. It cannot be kept out. Nothing can fall outside of it. Everything is a part of it. So Paul says, all things work together for good. So, he says in that same passage in Jeremiah, when he says, I will rejoice, he says, I will not turn away from doing them good. I will not turn away. Or as it says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And you can translate that only good, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's it. Just what's the rest of my life? Mark it out. Goodness. Mercy. 
That's it. Oh, yeah, there are going to be hardships. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be all kind of things. Could be martyrdom. Could be imprisonment. Could be death. But mark over all of it. Pure goodness from God. It's all-encompassing. So in all ways, at all times, in every circumstance and every event, it's never averted. It permeates everything. It envelops everything. His goodness shines into everything, sweetens everything. It's the aroma of our lives. It's the whole point and reason for you to live today is so that God may give you good. Why else would he have you alive? Okay, why else would he have you alive but to do good to you today? Is there any other purpose in his heart for his people? No. So if you can think of it for God's plan today, it's how will I give myself to him or her today? How will I give myself to him or her? Because the reward is himself here. It's not uh, if you seek him, you get all this other stuff. Though ultimately we'll see there is a heavenly, uh, the new heavens and the new earth. But the whole essence now and forever is I get him. I seek him and he rewards me by giving me him. I'm not seeking, I'm seeking him and the reward is that I would get what I seek, him. Now if you want to seek something else, God doesn't have a deal for you. But if you want to seek him, he's got a deal for you. An everlasting deal, a daily deal, a minute by minute deal. He'll give himself to you. All of his goodness. So it's wholehearted and therefore it's all encompassing. But thirdly, and this is very important for us and very important as he's speaking to the people here in in this letter. It's goal oriented. You see, they were in the midst of tremendous trial and they were beginning to turn away from Christ to go back to Judaism, some of them, because they were in a context in which they were being persecuted so much uh, by the by Jews in the area of Palestine at this time. And so they were turning away and he's giving them a vision of what is theirs to come and that this is a process of goodness. So it's goal oriented. It's progressive. He builds to a magnificent end. He is working toward a monumental, all glorious consummation. And all parts are working together and coming together to that final point. And therefore, at the time, there are a lot of odd looking parts, seemingly useless, pointless pieces in our lives. But they're not in God's way of dealing they're all working toward this and, and they fit in and contribute toward this final end. So that the final end that we will have more of him, we'll have more of his character, more fellowship with him. His glory and kingdom will be extended and the gospel will be extended. All of these things for which we long will be and are occurring in what he is doing. In fact, it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That word things can mean events or does mean events. And events mean human events. It means things that he is going to do for his people. Faith is this assurance. It's this certainty. 
It's the very reality of these events that he's going to bring into our lives ultimately that will happen to us and for us. And so there are personal benefits and blessings and faith brings them so clearly to our present that we know they're there and they govern our present, not what we see. They become the new scene. They become the reality in which we live. Because we realize this is all progressing. If you saw Joseph at a certain time in his life and you say, Joseph, you know, you, you got thrown in a pit by your brothers. Uh, they all hate you. you. You got sold into slavery. You try to serve this guy. His wife comes on to you. You reject her. You get thrown into prison. You're probably going to die here. This does not look real good at this point. This does not look like all things are working together. This does not look like any progression up. It's all been downhill. Everything is downhill. And yet it was the very means by which Joseph became the second in command in Egypt, literally ruled the world, saved Egypt and his family because of it. If you're renovating a house, in the middle of the renovation, it doesn't look as good as when you started, does it? I've been cleaning out drawers and under the sink uh, of the, over the uh, holidays. And boy, in the middle of it, you know, Kay could come in and just say, what in the world have you done? You know, the, the kitchen just looks like a bomb went off. But when it's all done and finished, how much better and cleaner it looks. God's in a process. God is in a process. He is working toward a final end. So it's very important that we understand it's goal-oriented. And that's why Hebrews is so taken up with the idea of promise. We live by promise. We live by His commitment to do us good, even when it doesn't appear that He is doing us good. We live by promise. That's why He's called a covenant God, a promise-keeping God. We're not the promise-keepers. He's the promise-keeper, ultimately. And he keeps his promise perfectly. And that's why Peter can say in Second Peter, it's through the promises that you embrace him. You've got no other access to him. Because if you look at the way things are, it doesn't look so good. But if you look to the promise, then through that promise by faith, you can embrace the love and devotion of God for you. And it becomes real, even though on the surface it sure doesn't look right. But by the promise, we partake of the divine nature, Second, uh, uh, Peter says in Second Peter. By the promise, we embrace the grace and goodness of God. And so I think of the psalmist when he says in Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you taste and see that the Lord is good? If you don't taste by promise, brother and sister, you're not going to taste it, period. You're not going to taste his goodness. You're going to reject his goodness. You're going to think he's against you. You're going to doubt it. But by promise, you can taste him. You can feed on him. You can be nourished on him. You can be like Paul and Barnabas singing praises in a filthy, rat-infested dungeon. Because they were tasting promise. They were tasting the goodness of God in the midst of the prison. And then finally, it's never-ending it's a never-ending goodness. Peter speaks a, a lot about this, doesn't he? At the first part of the letter, 
and he says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. This embraces even the new heavens and the new earth, the final reconstitution of all things when this earth will be remade, will be resurrected, and will have new bodies. So there is this never ending goodness that, that in no way uh, we could say one aspect of it, it will never change, it will never diminish. Another aspect of it, it is unmixed. It's only good, only peace, only joy, only love. All pain is removed. It means that it's perfect and complete. There's nothing left out. And whatever would satisfy you as a human being will be brought to bear in your life. You won't be looking back and say, man, if I could have been married before I went into heaven, that, you know, I missed out on a lot, you know. Or you may be thinking the opposite, you know. But you may be thinking, if I could have done this, if I could have traveled, if I could have owned that, there's so much that's going to, the door's going to shut in history and then, well, then it's just kind of left over whatever is left in heaven. No. Whatever would satisfy you personally to the absolute full as a human being, as God has made you, he's going to bring to bear in your life. There's not going to be anything left out. You'll be looking back saying, I wish I could have, wish I had a. No, it's complete, this goodness that God will bring. An infinitely passionate God using all of his power to bring good in your life forever. And it's unmixed and it's complete and it's perfect. There'll be no looking over the shoulder. Therefore, this is the ultimate good, real good, true good. We've only tasted bits and pieces of it. And then we get it to the full. And so I want to ask you today, what, to what good are you committed? What are you, what are you dedicating your life to for good in your life? See, the remarkable thing, as Lewis said about the scriptures, they're unblushing in their promises. You think the scriptures would be embarrassed to say, well, you know, I'm calling you to do this because it's going to be so good for you. You know, you think that would be a kind of a low-grade appeal, you know, to appeal to your baser side of saying, look, I, I'm asking you to come to this because, frankly, you'll have all blessings forever if you come to Christ. You know, it's like, well, who wouldn't do that? You know, so Lewis said, it's the unblushing promises of God, unblushingly saying, look, this is for your good. I'm dedicated to your good. My son has died in order to do you good. In order that you might have forgiveness for your sins. In order that you might be restored in fellowship to me. In order ultimately that you would reign with my son forever and ever. This is the offer. And that's why to commit yourself to anything else. For your good, to commit to anything else in life, to take what necessarily would become then an idol, you know, in an opposition to push God away and say, I'm going out, I'm, I'm taking something else as the basis for my happiness. And of course, we can do that ultimately, but we can do it in small ways, too, by saying, I'm not going to be a different husband anymore. I'm not going to be a different kind of wife and commit myself to my husband's good or my wife's good. That's committing to idolatry. That's committing to a happiness that's falling outside of the glorious sacrifice and fruitfulness and richness that God would call you to in Christ. Oh, we can build an idol in every single way in our lives. 
But to give ourselves as we pray this morning to say, hallowed be thy name, means that we hallow ourselves to God. We give ourselves completely up to him. And one of the reasons you do that, one of the motivations is, he's entirely committed to my good. Wholeheartedly, all-encompassing with this glorious goal of never-ending happiness and goodness. You know the kind of silly little song, but looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Boy, looking for goodness in all the wrong places. Boy, there's a place to find it. And that's at the cross of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your unlimited commitment to the good of your people. We thank you for how it is displayed in this very table to which we come. That even here, Lord, you are urging us to believe in those things that we don't see with our eyes, but we know by faith to be true. That this Christ, symbolized by bread and wine, is that committed to our good. This is the measure of his commitment to our good every day. He died for us. And he intercedes for us. And he reigns over the world for us and our good. Oh Lord, give us grace that we will entrust ourselves to you. Entrust ourselves to you to be able to say even with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though you cause every kind of loss in our lives, yet we will trust you. There may be discipline and difficulty and tragedy even. Persecution. And yet, Lord, we will believe in what is not seen. And that is the commitment of our God to our good in every circumstance of our lives. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. And draw us to yourself now in Jesus' name. Amen.